1: Welcome. This is Truth Jihad Radio special live edition, broadcasting out of the old ice cream trailer in the woods somewhere in western Wisconsin. For a while, we'll be moving to Morocco soon. I will keep my listeners posted on that. Meanwhile, you are listening to Revolution.Radio, the number one listener-sponsored network. It's free speech talk radio, totally uncensored, and you're going to notice that tonight as we go into some really sensitive areas, especially in the second hour, but uh, in the meantime, if you like free speech radio, please support revolution.radio. Also, please support me, Kevin Barrett, on the web at truthjihad.com. And my Substack, where you can subscribe and get early access to the archives of these shows is kevinbarrett.substack.com. All right, let's get going with tonight's show. Headlined uh, the, <laughs> uh, how did I headline this? The uh, 9-11 Truth Legends was how I headlined it. At uh, the radio blog, and I said something about the legendary old dudes <laughs> on my substack because, well, we are featuring some real legendary people tonight. Barry Zwicker, first hour guest, was probably the keynote guy. You know, the, he was the fulcrum of the early 9/11 truth movement, and then Alan Sobrowski in the second hour was the guy who came on my show in 2010 and said Israel did it, and I've been discussing this with my colleagues at the U.S. Army War College and making it clear that Israel did it, and of course that launched a different offshoot of the 9-11 Truth Movement. Both of these guys are historically important, and hey, uh, you know, we're all turning into legendary old guys, I guess, or at least old guys. Um, and we're going to be talking about Graham McQueen, who passed away. I guess that's what old guys like us do, is we we talk about our friends who passed away. And we're all going to really miss Graham, and so I'll talk about that with Barry's Zwickery. I also wanted to mention quickly that uh, my friend, Jim Fetzer, not everybody's friend, but he's definitely my friend. Uh, he is in the hospital after a double bypass surgery, so our prayers go out to Jim. He's uh, a, a really uh, very kind and generous and decent, special human being. Of course, if you've gotten in a big fight with him in the public venue, you might not realize that. But uh, we, are, we are praying for Jim. And I heard uh, my friend Rolf just talk to him earlier today. And so he was, he was talking to folks. And God willing, he will be out and about and back on the show. He was on the show last week. And so, oh, man. Anyway, let's, let's get going with the first hour. Barry Zwicker is, well, he, he, he was a mainstream journalist in Canada. But a bit of a media critic who actually asked hard questions about the way the mainstream media reported things, and that positioned him to become this really important figure, arguably the most important figure in the early 9/11 truth movement. He directed the International Citizens' Inquiry into 9/11 in Toronto, which was kind of the the first big 9/11 conference, as I recall. He published Towers of Deception, one of the best books on 9-11, and he made the great conspiracy film and spin-offs, which is at the very top shelf of the films on 9-11. So Barry is a very important, accomplished guy who uh, basically took on this ridiculous big lie with courage and integrity and helped spark this large movement of people who've been questioning it ever since. So I think we have him on the line. Let's find out. Hey, welcome, Barry. Are you there?
0: I am here. I've been listening quietly as I was ordered to do.
1: <laughs> hey, at least one guy knows how to follow orders, unlike some of my guests. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I honestly didn't even know you were there. You were you're quiet as a proverbial mouse. Now, some of these people <laughs> they get the call and they just like, "Hello, hello, hello, hello." And I'm trying to do my monologue and they just keep saying, "Hello, hello." And it, it messes with my monologue, but you didn't do that, and I appreciate it. <laughs> So so, Barry. Yeah, yeah. It's it's good to reconnect with you. Um, you know, I, I really love and honor your work, and so you're you're going to be taking part in a tribute to Graham McQueen, who passed away recently, and that's just happening tomorrow, I think. So, could you tell us about that?
0: Yes, I I'm I'm uh, really uh, happy to see the development of the lawyers for nine eleven truth and this inter- new international body that Ted, Walter, and others have put together. And uh, because it's easy enough, you know, it's so many years ago, 20-plus years ago, that 9-11 happened. And sometimes you wonder, is it is it worth it to stick with it? Is it worth it to continue to try to tell the truth about it, to question it, and so forth? And uh, you know that that, uh, if you look at history, there are so many big lies in history that go on, and they go on for decades, they go on for hundreds of years. Uh, For instance, I was born on November the 5th, 1934, so people who can do arithmetic can figure out (laughs) what year I'm in. But anyway, I bet you, I bet people can remember happened. your
1: birthday. They remember the, remember the fifth of November.
0: That's right. There's that little that little uh, poem. Remember, remember the fifth of November. You were born Gun on, Gun on Guy Fawkes season. Day. Guy Fawkes Day, otherwise known as Gunpowder Day. But anyway, you know, most people still don't know the truth about that, and it happened in 1605. <laughs> and oh, man. Um, is the so, Guy
1: Fawkes Truth Movement uh, still pushing ahead?
0: <laughs> i don't know uh, there, there's been there's there have been a couple of books that you know spell out what really happened you know the the official story is that there were there's 36 barrels of gunpowder in the basement of the uh, british parliament buildings in fact at that time there was no basement right to begin with not like, only was there no gunpowder
1: but, gun but there was no basement either <laughs>
0: Well, there there was gunpowder actually, but it wasn't in the basement.
1: Yeah, wet gunpowder. Yeah,
0: how big a pardon?
1: I think it was it was wet gunpowder. It wasn't really primed. Yeah, that's
0: right that is you are right it was of the inferior quality so anyway the the official story the palace version literally uh of the gunpowder plot uh is still largely believed and has been carried forward it was something like 200 years until a book came out that uh that uh, really explored the truth about what happened mind you the uh, the guy fox himself and about 12 co-conspirators They were conspirators, that is true. They were Roman Catholics who were much prejudiced against in the England of that time. Um, But anyway, they were all uh, found and put to death in very short order. So anyway, uh, I don't necessarily expect that the truth will out, as the saying goes. And when it does out, uh, it's just incrementally. It's not like there's a sudden uh, blaze of understanding and the whole population catches on. Just doesn't happen that way, and uh, so obviously it's not happening that way with nine eleven, uh, with the truth about it. So, uh, but anyway, I'm 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 very uh, buoyed uh, by the fact that there are still good people yourself, Kevin, and many others, and there are good organizations that that soldier on, if I may use a military phrase. And so we keep the 9-11 truth movement alive. And uh, as with uh, the number of people, according to uh, proper public polling, uh, who do not buy the official story of JFK's assassination, that it was a lone gunman. Uh, Similarly, there's, there's a substantial... Fraction of the population that does not accept the official story of 9/11, uh, or has suspicions about it, questions about it, hypotheses about it, and uh, so that that's good. And uh, and and uh, I said to my wife, and it wasn't fair to her uh, after I understood what had happened on 9/11. And I am partly proud, but it wasn't just my doing. Uh, to say that before noon, on the day of 9-11, I caught on that it was a false flag operation. I actually have witnesses uh, who can tell you they they were uh, tenants of ours who were visiting in our living room that day as we turned on the TV because we were told by a neighbor that something interesting was going on in New York City and uh and so at first i believed the official story i saw the towers come down and then when the us air force did not show up just did not show up when there are these uh alleged terrorists flying all over hell's half acre i got very suspicious and i said before noon that day this is a white stag fire 2001 wow you and you're ahead of uh, a lot my of uh, yeah, and and I've been I've been I've been thankful for that, but uh, but uh, but the reason that I I can't be um, you know all full of myself about that, is because of my father. My father was opposed to Hitler early on. My father being uh, a United Church minister in Canada. The United Church minister, a United Church has always been a very progressive church, and uh, and my father. Uh, was a political guy, really, Uh, thanks to both his mother and father. They were sort of progressive Presbyterians. And uh, so he was opposed to Hitler, and actually he preached political sermons. And, um, you know, at the time that Hitler was rising up in the mid-30s, there were uh, magazines like Reader's Digest that were – Actually, pro Hitler, and they were buying the official story uh, and and the mystique of Hitler to some extent. When, when, when you say of the, the official history.
1: story, do you, you mean the Reichstag fire?
0: There's absolutely the official story about the Reichstag fire. That that that, that did not get blown open and uh, that did not get exposed for years and years and years. It was blamed, you know, on a single communist. Who allegedly allegedly went in there and started the fire?
1: He, he's and, uh, uh, Marius, Marius Vandeloup. He, he was like the Lee Harvey Oswald of 1930s Germany, lone nut.
0: Precisely, he was he was set up, and he was rapidly executed. And then, of course, after the Reichstag fire, uh, they collected up all the socialists and communists. They killed a huge number of them. And so on. It was a big turning point, like 9/11, yeah. a big turning point. Started the 9/11 wars.
1: And, 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 so and Barry, let me just quickly, well, quickly interrupt you here, just on behalf of my listeners who sympathize with uh, a kind of revisionist take on World War II, which I do up to a certain extent as well. That argues that this this kind of story we've been told that it was all about Hitler's aggression and that you know Hitler was 100% the bad guy and all of the anti-Hitler forces were 100% the good guy is, uh, is grossly mistaken, and that, in fact, the blame can be parceled around in very different quantities. Uh, some would go so far as to argue that Hitler's aim was only to reunite the German-speaking lands, and that the reason the war happened was more the result of miscalculations by people like Churchill, uh, or bad calculations— and uh, perhaps rather good strategic calculations from people like Roosevelt.
0: Well, it, you know, I, I have a saying uh, that I repeat endlessly, and that is everything is more complicated than it at first appears, and that is certainly true of historical events. And uh, and uh, I, I'm I'm much in praise, for instance, of uh, these wonderful. Books uh, by David Ray Griffin. Uh, specifically, I've read recently *The American Trajectory: Divine or Demonic*, and and uh, so he spells out uh, behind various uh, historical incidents such as Pearl Harbor and uh, and of course 9/11 and so forth that. That there are complications behind, and it's it's hard to find anybody who's completely faultless, and it's hard to find anybody who is a total devil, you know, including Hitler, for goodness' sakes. Because there's you mean even already, Hitler wasn't really a Hitler.
1: It, we know Gaddafi wasn't a Hitler, and uh, Saddam wasn't a Hitler, but you're saying Hitler wasn't a Hitler.
0: I beg your pardon?
1: Uh, I, I'm actually borrowing a joke from Ron Unz, who just wrote a really good World War II revisionist piece in which he joked that he he knew that uh, that Saddam wasn't really a Hitler and that Gaddafi wasn't really a Hitler, but he was very surprised when he read a number of uh, books about World War II and learned that Hitler wasn't a Hitler either.
0: Oh, okay, I get you. <laughs> right. That's, that's good. That's funny, and that's true. That's excellent. And uh, now... Um, David Ray Griffin's final book published posthumously is America on the Brink How US Foreign Policy Led to the War in Ukraine. So if you want to look at something that seems simple such as Putin is just a tyrant and he just simply started the war and uh and and it was unjustified and uh, which is the standard line from the State Department and the Atlantic Magazine, and on and on. Not that simple, of course. Not that simple, uh, because Russia, with the continued encirclement by NATO of Russia, uh, is it it was and is existentially threatened. And if Ukraine got into or gets into NATO, uh, you know there will be um, missile sites, nuclear missile sites. Five minutes from Moscow, USA would not put up for one damn instant with anything like that kind of encirclement and danger. Uh, And so the hypocrisy is a mile high on these things. But I think I've kind of digressed. That's my fantasy, yeah, well, let, well anyway. let's get back
1: to nine eleven Truth and Graham McQueen, who uh, was another Canadian like yourself who contributed enormously to this movement about finding out the truth about this crucially important uh, event that happened here in the United States.
0: Indeed, and that's where we should be. And, and uh, the fact is, as I've, I've uh, mentioned to you by email and sent you, Uh, an attachment, I've been asked to be one of three people who leads off the commemoration uh, for uh, Graham tomorrow. It starts at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern and in New York City. And uh, so I, of course, have prepared something to say. I think there's something like a five-minute limit that we uh, Ted Walter and Elizabeth Woodworth are the other two people who have been invited to lead off remarks at the commemoration of Graham's life. And uh, so I have mine and uh, you have seen it and uh, agree that probably it would be suitable if I was to share this with your listeners right now. Yeah, please because, please do, Barry. But for, uh, first
1: let's quickly remind the listeners uh, that Graham uh, was a, a Buddhist studies scholar, among other things, the uh, founder of a great uh, peace studies program at McMaster, and that he made two enormous contributions to the truth movement. One was investigating the eyewitness testimonies of explosions at the World Trade Center, and the other was writing the best book on the anthrax element of the 9-11 anthrax coup d'etat, and uh, that was called The 2001 Anthrax Deception and those were two just uh you know you can two two of the very biggest contributions to the truth movement and uh, so he he was a really important guy as well as 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 a good guy and you'll, you'll be talking about that
0: very much a good guy and who uh actually founded the center for peace studies at McMaster University in Hamilton Ontario Canada and and uh a a wonderful friend uh a A smart smart person uh a as you say a buddhist and uh so i'll I'll just uh, thank you for bringing that up for the listeners uh which which uh partly sketches in the kind of person that Graham was and who uh who whose work will live on indefinitely. And so I'll just share uh, what I've actually written out to say tomorrow at the actual memorial for him, if I may.
1: Uh, Go right ahead.
0: So, Yeah. So it goes like this. When I first met Graham, the first thing I learned about him was that I would not learn from him about his remarkable accomplishments for instance, that he had founded the Center for Peace Studies at Pastor University. I have zero recollection that he told me that. Of course, the functioning of my memory, or should I say the low functioning of my memory, is a factor here. But I think that those with superior memories who knew him will tell you how deep was his humility. I don't know when or how I learned that he became a Buddhist, But we did have in common that we were both sons of the Mance, in our cases, United Church of Canada Mances, and we both grew up in the Canadian Maritimes. I'd become an atheist Christian humanist, so we had in common a non-theistic questioning approach to everything and shared an achingly deep. Wish for and commitment to the dream of peace, of preventing and ending all wars. We met because we both understood that the official story of 9 11 was a big lie and that this was very important, opening the door to the so called war on terror and the 9 11 wars. Some of the deepest and most lasting friendships I've been blessed with are based on that common recognition. I was able to tell Graham that in an email just back on March the 16th, and I'll quote from it if I may. This day reminds me again of the unintended byproduct of the massive deception of 9-11, the finding of of fellow spirits such as yourself and those you thank in your acknowledgments and others who remain close friends and associates still 22 years later i'd received a link graham sent me and just three others with an attachment the pentagon b movie graham's legacy book or has he put it quote yo my friends i decided to pull together the 9-11 related articles i'd written over the years unquote It includes the brilliant analysis he and Ted Walder produced based on their tracking down 169 video clips of news coverage from early in the day of 9-11, in which journalists and others reported the demolition explosions in the Twin Towers. But further clips, then show this reportage was replaced by carefully planned and executed propaganda from official and planted mouthpieces. So I wrote Graham that, quote, it was not too soon to declare that the Pentagon B movie is a tour de force, a profoundly important work that's compelling, highly informative, and inspirational to those of us tilling the same ground, trying to expose what's beneath the surface of the U.S. Empire and its deranged brainchild 9-11. So he and I also had in common that we organized public inquiries into the truths about 9-11, and you mentioned that, Kevin, and we both authored books on this, and uh, his 2014 book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception. The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy, as you mentioned, it's a model of superior research and writing. And this also applies, and this is where Gene might bring up uh, one image that I've supplied to him. This also applies to his 2016 book, The October 22, 2014 Ottawa Shootings, Why Canadians Need a Public Inquiry. Now, I'm not sure how many people know about his, uh, about that event, as a matter of fact, which we can discuss a little bit later, perhaps. But I'm not sure how many people know about his 2022 book entitled Journey to the City of Six Gates. As soon as I found out about it, probably not from him, I purchased it and tried as it is to say, I could not put it down and read it in one evening. It has earned five out of six stars on Goodreads. The summary includes this, quote, its heroes, their 14-year-old princess and her 12-year-old brother, must discover how to deal with injustice without descending to the level of their violent persecutors. Through contemplative, poetic, incantation and robust uncluttered prose it weaves into its fabric issues such as the status of women and care for the forests and that really reflects a lot about graham that book graham was literally a gentleman when he said he was angry about the lies of 9-11 he did not shout it all the more you knew it was true I don't recall, and again, my memory is an issue, that he ever directed anger at a person or persons he would name. His spirituality was deep and profound. When I last saw him at a meeting last year at a friend's home, along with five other friends, he went on longer than usual on the question of some kind of afterlife. I don't mind saying I was spellbound by what he was saying, and thinking as he spoke how deeply respectful I was of him. He had stage four cancer of the prostate. He was not fooling himself about his mortality. He was exploring it as deeply as he explored everything. And finally, his sense of humor. It was ever-present, which made his company additionally pleasant, always. And I can sort of hear his voice now as I think of him. So that's that's my tribute to uh, Graham McQueen that we've learned a little bit about already this evening here.
1: All right, that's beautiful, Barry. Thank you. Yeah, Graham did have a, a great sense of humor, and sometimes you know it could come out. It could be you know perfectly biting, like when he said that if the anthrax perps who had written on their anthrax letters death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. If they had wanted to frame Native Americans, they would have written, white man in heap big trouble.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. No, great sense of humor, Graham. Absolutely. And and, uh, that goes a long way in life, in general, Uh, you know, to have a sense of humor and keep it alive and share it. So uh, so that gives you a good feeling thinking about him in that respect.
1: Yeah, he's the kind of guy I, I would have loved to have had as an academic colleague. You know right now, I'm not particularly heartbroken about having been hounded out of the academy and become you know become unemployable in the American and Western academies, just because frankly, <laughs> most of what goes on there strikes me as pretty pathetic, uh, certainly in the human sciences anyway. but there are these good people who managed to survive in certain university positions. And, you know, he's one of them, you know. So if, if I could imagine a, a good situation at teaching in a university, it would be with colleagues like him.
0: Indeed, indeed. And uh, it's not for nothing that most of us remember our college days, to some extent our high school days, uh, and then perhaps especially our college or university days as very important when we made great friendships uh that 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 often last a lifetime and uh so it's it's uh it's a wonderful thing to have i i you know a little bit of an offshoot to this i listen to cbc radio all the time canadian broadcasting corporation and there are three channels um more than three but uh three main ones. And, um, on the morning classical music show, uh, the hosts share bits of wisdom and news hosts, no radio hosts normally do that. Right. Don't they between, between songs and so forth. That's not unusual, but what I heard this morning really interested me. The host said, referred to some uh, study, which I believe was a legitimate study, uh, about happiness. And uh, this uh, involved uh, thousands and thousands of people uh, who were uh, studied in regards to what could make them happy. And uh, the host went on to say that it wasn't money. It wasn't uh, power and prestige. That was a common thing uh, with people who are happy. What it was, what it is, is having eight minutes, for some reason, eight minutes, as mentioned, eight-minute telephone conversations with their friends because we're social animals. And to bring it down to that is really, really something uh, somehow relates a bit to what you just said, Kevin. I don't think it relates much, but oh well. well, well
1: that, relates- the eight minutes is is interesting. That sounds like sort of an optimal length for a fairly you know in-depth YouTube, right? I mean, I, I put all this stuff on YouTube that goes on and on and on for you know an hour or two hours or whatever, but apparently most people like to click on really short YouTubes, and so you know eight minutes seems like a pretty short conversation. To me, you know, I, I talk with friends like you, you know, nine eleven truth friends, on for an hour here on Friday nights on the live radio show, and and so on. Uh, but with the eight minute thing, exactly eight, like seven minutes wouldn't wouldn't do it, and nine would be too much. And so what's with that? Yeah. And, and and are you supposed to talk with a particular friend for exactly eight minutes, like once a week, once a month, and then you should have at least eight friends with whom you talk eight minutes each? For I mean, how, what what's the rest of it besides the eight minutes? <laughs>
0: I don't. I'm. I'm actually going to look into this. Uh, the, the the host could just give uh, a super abstract re- rendering of the report, but I'm. I'm pretty sure that we could rather quickly find it one way or another. And I mean, there are happiness studies, there are studies of uh, the relative happiness of people in various countries and so forth. I think Denmark usually comes out on top. But uh, a- anyway, I-, I hadn't heard it before. And and it had to do with the uh, kind of uh, the, the kind of friendships that we have with people like Graham McQueen and why these last and why they're so important and give our lives meaning. And you know, you wrote uh, a wonderful uh, eulogy for him yourself, Kevin. That, that it, uh, and you wrote it very soon after Graham passed away, and uh, and it's it's a marvelous a marvelous tribute to him that you wrote.
1: Well, thank you, Barry. Yeah. Well, I I did just Google the eight minute phone call thing, and there's a New York Times story about it, and lots of other stories as well. Uh, and it looks like the thrust of it is that eight minutes is a good length for the phone call that maintains a friendship. So rather than talking to somebody for an hour once or twice a year, you should talk to them for eight minutes, you know, pretty often. So maybe I need to change my radio show. So instead of an hour-long conversation on Friday nights, I should have lots of eight-minute conversations with lots of people throughout the week and splice them together or something. Hmm, I don't know if that would work for a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: uh, may, may, maybe there's room for a new show called The 8 Minutes Show. There you and go, Eight-Minutes of Truth. What? Why, is, why is it eight minutes?
1: Well, that's that's better, than, <laughs> but like, you really... better than three minutes of hate or whatever that Orwellian thing was. But, yeah, eight, eight minutes of truth. I, th- yeah. I think we have a new concept here.
0: <laughs> yeah, eight, eight minutes to a happy life and a meaningful one. But, uh, you know, who knows? We learn... Things every single day, do we
1: not? Oh my gosh! Yeah, so, you know that, that maintaining relationships thing is, is there's probably something to that. And you know, I, I probably am not that great at it. You know, I'm kind, i don't really like phone calls. I'm—you know—I'm kind of a technophobe. I like to talk to people face to face, and it's always sort of driven me crazy that I can't do that. You know, since I was young and bohemian in San Francisco, when I could, uh, but since then. I haven't really been able to, uh, but yeah, that, uh, that's an interesting, you know, I, I actually, I, I, do occasionally get on the phone with the second hour guest today, Alan Sobrowski, who is more of that way. Like, you know, a lot of people do sort of maintain these telephone type relationships and, and he does that. He calls me out of the blue sometimes and we, and we Uh, which, and he, you know, he's somebody with, with views that probably, you know, they're a little, little different from mine. Certainly they were very challenging to mine when I first met him. You know, he's, he's a pretty hardcore conservative. Uh, and if you read his recent article, Barry, uh, (laughs) which is, uh, it's called Feminine Dystopia. Uh, he's basically calling Uh for women to be chased out of many aspects of public life. (laughs) Uh, so anyway, meeting the people I meet on these shows, who have views that are often whatever, something about those views has gotten them censored from the mainstream. And a lot of those people, of course, have figured out things like 9-11. Uh, that's been really interesting because my boundaries have been stretched out. I've, you know, met all of these really smart, interesting people with views that are not allowed into the mainstream. And it's I think that's a good experience. It makes you think, you know, the mainstream is really doing a bad thing here by Preventing these interesting voices from helping stretch the, the the minds of more people.
0: Indeed. And, you know, you're there's a, a friend of mine and actually my oldest friend, my oldest friend. His name is Terry O'Connor. And uh, we were uh, we went to college together uh, from 1955 to 1958, took uh, journalism at Ryerson uh, University in Toronto. And he met, he, he, he used a word one time that stuck with me ever since. And he talked about my approach. And he just said, your approach. And I've thought about different people's approaches. And that word, uh, it, it, it has a, has a, a large meaning for me. And for instance, you and Graham have a very similar approach because you are tolerant up to point, uh, tolerant of very diverse views and views with which you do not agree necessarily. And often you disagree with you're that way. Graham was that way. I hope I'm that way uh, uh, a bit, but not as much as you guys. And, and it's it's what enables you to have such a successful radio program because you're not ruling people out because you've got a kind of a sclerotic view of things that has to be reproduced uh thanks to your program the way probably Fox News uh, you know has a line there that it generally generally uh follows and promotes. And and so that is so welcome, and uh, and and Graham, as I mentioned in what I just read, uh, when he was talking about the possibility of an afterlife, and I being uh, scientific inclined, so was Graham scientifically inclined, and I found it hard and find it hard to believe there can be life after this one. But I thought that he was so eloquent, so thoughtful, so probing in going into this subject. And after all, we have things to learn about the universe we can't dream of. You know, there are trillions not millions, trillions of galaxies. I have only learned this in the last couple of years. I mean, it's it, it's it's you know mind-boggling. Doesn't cover it. And so, uh, so is who is to who is to say, not me, that there could not be life after death, some form of life, and and he. I I think everybody was spellbound as he talked about it, and time stood still, if you will. This was a very thoughtful person uh, of great intellect and moral force and curiosity who applies the scientific method and then goes beyond it to some extent. And it was a privilege to be there and hear him talk about this. Uh, I imagine we were all changed to some extent that morning.
1: Well, that's interesting that uh, that Graham was interested in the afterlife and gave such a moving talk about it. That's also a topic that David Ray Griffin, another religious studies professor, was interested in and did research on, actually. And uh, yeah. that's how I actually encountered him. Was through his work on uh, reincarnation, and he uh, edited a book based on a conference on psi issues—the you know, debate over whether the mind can do all of these things that seem to sort of indicate a transcendence of physical reality. And so, yeah, David and Graham, I think, were were kind of the, you know had had a certain similarity in being uh, really uh, profound. Very highly intelligent people, who went into religious studies, uh, which took certain courage, right? Because I mean, the the real religion of the elites has been anti-religious or anti-traditionally religious uh, for at least a century now, and then they applied their rigorous intellects to some of these really you know deep issues, uh, including that that afterlife issue, and did. Good work on that. And that that's another thing that, you know, that that's that's pretty heretical, actually, in the academy. Now, you don't really want to be taking psi research seriously in the academy if you want to further your career, even though there's a really powerful body of work that is. I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate discipline and they don't have to prove that Psy exists anymore. They did that decades ago. And yet much of the academy is unaware of this, ignorant of it, wants to remain ignorant and just reflexively. Barks and yowls and, and drools against it, uh, and so those guys had the courage to follow the truth wherever it led, including you know the, through scientific uh, evidence for these kinds of paradigm-busting phenomena. And so, so Barry, by the way, you you, know, you've, you mentioned that you're you know you kind of come out of a uh, an atheist and basically I think materialist school of thought, and I'm wondering. Has that changed at all, or have you explored any different alternatives to that? There's, for instance, there's a great book out by uh, Bernardo Kastrup called Materialism is Baloney. And from a purely philosophical perspective, he shows that the materialist philosophy doesn't cut it, that it's actually much simpler, more straightforward, more elegant, more in line with the basic evidence of our senses every day to... Uh, so, to, to embrace idealism rather than materialism—that is, the universe is, is consciousness; it's not basically matter.
0: Well, I, uh, I, I don't think I've ever followed a materialist line. Um, I, I don't really trust materialism. I'm not sure what it always means. But one thing uh, I was—I recalled as you were speaking just now about one minute ago and you said follow the truth wherever it may lead and this was a very powerful thing that my father taught me. Uh, I remember he he was a great, besides being a very good pastor and being a, a political, a daring political pastor, he almost lost one of his pastorates because If you go back again to Hitler, uh, he was preaching against Hitler from the pulpit uh, back in Port Hood, Nova Scotia in 1933, 34, around the time I was born. And uh, and numbers of the congregation did not care for it. And readers, I just thought Hitler was pretty good. Yeah, things uh, have changed,
1: haven't they, Barry? I mean, you can't imagine somebody facing uh, being thrown out of their pulpit for for dissing Hitler today.
0: (laughs) No. No, I don't think you could. And so he, he, yeah, yeah, he almost lost. And I wish he'd kept uh, Fuller diaries. I have his diaries, but they were five-year diaries, and you only get four or five lines per day. And and uh, I, I've I've read between some of those lines when the board was meeting and 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 threatening to uh, let him go. And uh, so he he uh, paid prices uh, for his political religious uh, approach and and uh, so I remember he was great gardener too. In uh, Swan River, Manitoba, Northern Manitoba, he actually had three gardens. There was a, there was this, this ample garden behind the manse, and then there was a railroad man across the lane who was away a lot and uh, and my father agreed to take care of his garden and then he had another garden on the outskirts of town um and my my mother too was a gardener and and, and grew all sorts of flowers so i remember being in the back garden with him it was more than once had happened and um and i was perhaps 14 or 15 and i i had to tell him that I couldn't believe in God anymore. And here I am, a preacher's kid, right? And he wasn't shocked. And uh, he said, son, you have to follow the truth wherever it may lead. Now, I know that's a cliche, but he told me that when I was around that age, my pastor father, he, he gave me permission, in other words, to be at least agnostic and did not feel threatened by it, and allowed me to f- try to find my own mental and spiritual way. And so he was a wonderful uh, mentor. And uh, he, his, he was the biggest influence in my life and, and remains so, because uh, he, he also asked me at one point if I had felt the call and you know that's terminology in church circles. Uh, whether you have felt the call, and, and uh, to be a to be a clergyman, to go into the ministry, and and I had to tell him no, I, I I had not felt the call. And he completely accepted that he wasn't going to be disappointed or whatever. He just asked, and I answered. So he was he was certainly a model and a mentor and um and and uh, so that that all resonates with some things you've just said and with the approach of Graham and the approach of David Ray Griffin and uh these are people to look up to these are people to learn from and uh and and i i hope i have and uh i hope that i've been some kind of a of a model for I, I know I have for my son. I'm almost embarrassed when he tells me how he looks up to me, despite all my flaws. So uh, these are very important human connections, findings, beliefs, and ways of being. Yeah, and uh, yes. I'm 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 glad that I'm glad the conversation has turned this way.
1: Yes. Well, Barry. You know, what you did was very courageous in that you had a journalism career and you were writing for mainstream papers. And when you saw something wrong with the official story of 9-11, you obviously could see as things developed that the journalism world wasn't eager to embrace the information that you were going to put out there. And yet you you just went ahead and did it and faced being marginalized.
0: I, I Well, no, I I need to uh, I, I have interrupted you. Uh, the, you you uh, haven't got uh, uh, the chronology right there. Um, I was in the mainstream media, uh, and uh, then I left to freelance, <clears throat> and that was around 1970. It's a long time ago now, way before 9/11. So I was not in mainstream journalism at the time of 9-11. Well, you were doing media criticism, but, weren't you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, uh, I was a, a long-time uh, on-air commentator for Vision TV, uh, actually uh, the uh, first multi-spiritual uh, television national television channel in the world. Vision TV. Uh, so, uh, it, Vision TV welcomed uh, all uh, religions, and including uh, no religion people, including atheists and agnostics. And uh, it was, it was, it, it remains still a pretty good channel, but it's just a shadow of what it used to be. And I joined it in September 1988 at its launch, and I was there for uh, 13 happy years. Uh, I had my own program uh, after a while. And it was while I was at Vision that 9-11 happened. And and that is when I realized, as I've already mentioned here, that uh, 9-11, the official story, was completely a lie. And so I knew that, and, and uh, I was wondering what to do about it. And then it occurred to me, hey, I've got my own television program. Why don't I do something about it on my own television program? And uh, so uh, I actually had to, had to. it wasn't a matter of clearing it. We had a very collegial uh, production uh, crew there of about a dozen people. And uh, so I got up the nerve. I, I, I did sp- speak to my video editor Barry Silverthorne. We're still great friends, and uh, I told him just a couple of days. I think I think nine eleven was a Tuesday, and I believe we had Friday medi- Friday afternoon meetings. And so very soon after nine eleven, I said to Barry, you know, uh, you may think I'm crazy, but I've got real questions about what really happened on on nine eleven. He said, Me too. And so I found out there were several others there at that point who did. But then I had to raise it in order to do any television programming on it. I had to raise it at the production meeting. And it took me a while. I thought, how am I going to do it? How am I going to, how am I going to introduce this and, and persuade the others, enough of the others, that I should tackle the truth about 9-11 in my commentaries? And and I just and so week after week went by and I I couldn't figure out how to approach it and then one day I just blurted it out I just blurted it out I said I don't believe the official story of nine eleven and I'd like to do something about it in my program called Media File and um, so interestingly one of the other producers when 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 uh, it came to the question of you know why didn't the U S Air Force take off and intercept those, uh, those alleged terrorists who were, had, had captured these planes and flying them all over Hell's Half Acre. And she said, well, the reason they didn't take off, they hadn't had their morning coffee. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it was the, that, the rationalizing mind. You know, we've all seen the rationalizing mind. It's, that's the way the human mind will make up stuff. Right
1: on the yeah, well, well they, they fixed that, Barry, by, by uh, putting uh, these coffee machines that spurt out a cup of coffee in less than half a second now at all the air bases. So, so now if there's an attack on <laughs> America, the fighter jets will get off the ground in a timely fashion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, that's modern technology to the rescue. Yeah, yeah. but but anyway, then, then so what I did was it, it ended up I I, I produced. Um, seven commentaries seven weeks they were weekly i produced seven produced a commentary for seven weeks about 911 and and it made me the first uh person on national television in the world i've tried to check it out i tried to check it out quite a few times i haven't been able to find contrary evidence that i was the first uh, television host in the world to question the, the official story of nine eleven on national television.
1: I'm pretty sure you and, were. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I think I I think so, but again, you know, it, it goes back to my father saying, "Follow the truth wherever it may lead," and which you mentioned, you actually stated that, uh, quoted that in this very program five minutes ago, and it would be the kind of thing that Graham believed and David Ray Griffin. Uh, believes into, and and it's it's a very important standard. It really is because it you know you have to have a little bit of courage if you're really going to follow that, and you're going to have to uh, embarrass yourself probably, and some people you may uh, lose status, you may lose income, God knows. But uh, people lose their lives over their beliefs. So, uh, so to just lose something short of your life isn't that much of a sacrifice. And actually, I've been lucky; I, I've never paid much of a penalty. I know, I know that there there were opportunities that that didn't come my way, and I could imagine, uh, I could imagine what could feed into that fact. But I've never been ambitious anyway, so it doesn't matter. Right. The, the, the big the big move I made uh, was to leave uh, conventional journalism. I was with the Toronto Star. First, I was with the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper for eight and a half years. And then the Toronto Star uh, invited me by doubling my salary and giving me uh, more freedom than I even had at the Globe. <laughs> I went over to the Star but uh, and, uh, and, and uh, the managing editor. I left then in a year. Uh, i uh i i i could see by then i had become enough of a media critic uh to see that i i didn't want to stay in conventional journalism and so it was like jumping off a cliff to go freelancing because i've never been prolific and i didn't make much money and it wasn't fair to my wife because she might not have rather gone back to work as she did uh you know we had small kids and I, I really wasn't contributing to the family larder uh, that well. I worked hard as a freelancer, but I never made anything close you know, to I, what I made. I, I can made. kind of
1: relate to that, Barry, having left the Academy and been a freelancer ever since. But I think we hit the end of the hour. I hear the background music in the background where it's supposed to be. So, hey, <laughs> Barry, is Oh, been...
0: my God. There we go. Yeah.
1: Great to catch up with I you. Think, uh,
0: uh, yes. And, but I, 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 imagine you'd agree, and I was about to say, and this is kind of getting to be my way of conclusion, that, that the freedom that we get when we're freelancing, when we're free of an institution, uh, is, is very, very important.
1: Okay. Well, freedom ain't free. And that's right. Sure, you yeah. need to contribute to revolution.radio and kevinbarrett.substack.com. <laughs> <laughs> <Subject. laughs> All right. Thanks, folks. And thank you, Barry. Uh, God bless and see you next time.